I'd like for everyone to think for a moment about the value of human life. And does one person's life have any more value than another person's life? The current fee-for-service system, healthcare is rationed out based on the patient's ability to pay. I believe it's unethical. This is criminal. 95% of the country is still functioning in the fee-for-service model. I definitely believe everyone should be treated the same. Everyone should have access to primary care regardless of their ability to pay. Hi, I'm Dr. Fassel Syed. Welcome to another episode of Fassel and Friends. We're here because we believe everyone deserves access to quality primary care, and ChenMed needs physicians to take care of them. Today's topic is healthcare minus insurance equals direct primary care. Very excited about this topic today. I um, I was on a panel a couple months, no, actually, my God, it was last year, Dr. <laughs> It was last year, and I was asked about, you know, me being a full-risk primary care doctor, how could I compare myself with a direct primary care doctor? And I said, you know, we're really quite similar. Both the full-risk primary care doctors and the direct primary care doctors are two arrows shot out of the same fee-for-service bow. There is no going back now, except I'm still tied with a, with a string. My arrow is still tied with a string to the, to the, to the bow. Uh, and my direct primary care friends are way out there and there's no going back. So I'm excited about today's show tonight. Robert. Hey, how are you I'm doing well. I dressed up like you today. I see that. I see that. Let's say you're looking quite spiffy. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I had another webinar I did earlier. So I, I had to dress up a little bit and um, it's not my usual Fridays with Fassel or Fassel and Friends vibe. I still can't get over the new name, working <laughs> on it, um, but excited to be here. I do think this is uh, it's something I've recently learned more about coming from Medicaid, Medicare and sort of the government space. Um, you know, the direct primary care group is a lot of similarities with the full risk um, sort of Medicare Advantage group, just like ChenMed. And, you know, both groups of physicians are trying to get back to that doctor-patient relationship, trying to get away from the pressures of fee-for-service that are quite honestly burning out physicians on a daily basis. I mean, at Avenue, I get messages and phone calls all the time of a lot of primary care doctors trying to get into the health tech space because they're just done with clinical practice. They sold their practice, went to an integrated health system or got was employed by a hospital. And they're like, I'm miserable. I'm burnt out. I have no control over anything. And this is not why I went to medical school. So I think we're heading towards some, some new models that are better for physician well-being and also better for patients and excited to learn more about direct primary care from two absolute leaders in that space today. I know, I know, I know. Dr. Dr. Dan, how are you doing? I didn't get to see Great. you that much today. Like I only saw you for like maybe a half an hour, an hour earlier. This is like, this is not normal. That's right. It's not normal. <laughs> lots of good things happening. So everybody's busy. So I, yeah. I spent most of the day interviewing doctors. So that was a good thing. That is a good thing. It's incredible, really, the activity um, that we have so far as just growth is concerned. I mean, the month of January, we had more activity with physician recruitment than than we had in all of 2019. It's incredible the amount of right. just interest um, doctors have with just leaving 
the fee-for-service system and just forgetting about the billing and the CPT codes and all and just focus again on just restoring that doctor-patient relationship. Okay, well, let's bring our friends for this week. We have Dr. Julie Gunther, Dr. Gunther, and Hi, Joe Grundy. Hey, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I, I, I was so thrilled. I, I first connected with Joe just in the last few weeks. And off, I get questions about, well, you know, with, with regards to direct primary care, is value-based care, like, is what you're doing the same as direct primary care? And isn't direct primary care like concierge medicine? Same with me, too. Like, oh, what you're doing is just concierge medicine, yeah. you know? And I'm like, well, with our centers, where you won't find any of our centers next to the country clubs. We're, we are in the same neighborhoods as basically the federally qualified health centers. And, 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 and I'd love to get the conversation started if you could dif differentiate, I mean, even earlier today, I was talking with someone saying, oh, well, you know, direct primary care, that's like that concierge medicine. Who can afford to pay $10,000 a year for a doctor? And I said, it costs less to get a doctor than what I'm paying right now to get my pool cleaned. So, yeah. so you coming on tonight would be fat. If you could just give an introduction to direct primary care, and uh, I'd love to get it started. Absolutely. You know what? So there's a there's a couple of different ways to handle that question. And I'm I'm gonna defer to Dr. Julie Gunther, who who lives it every single day and as Field did the question of how are you different from a concierge physician all the time? And and Faisal, this you're absolutely right, right? Like this is a question that a lot of people are still grappling with. In fact, last year there was there's an article in NPR about direct primate care, but what they were describing was concierge medicine. And, and we had to contact the reporter and be like, there, there really is a pretty significant difference between these two admittedly related models insofar as like people are paying out of pocket for, for having a relationship with a physician. But I think Dr. Gunther can really spell this out. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Joe. And thank you, Dr. Fazel and Robert and Dr. Dan for having us on. Um, I'm the current president of the Direct Primary Care Alliance, which is an organization of direct primary care physicians. So, um, And I also own my own direct primary care practice. So this is a question, like everyone's kind of said, it comes up all the time. And I, I was thinking of something, Dr. Fazel, just as you were talking, which is you can spend cash at Target and you can spend cash at Bloomingdale's but that doesn't mean Bloomingdale's is target. And so what's really exciting about value-based care, what's really exciting about direct primary care, what all of us are trying to do is we're recognizing that the existing business model does not work. And what's so crazy, right, is if you tried to bake pizza at a Mexican restaurant and you couldn't succeed, you know, you wouldn't blame yourself, right? But that's what so many physicians are doing. They're trying to deliver an end product high quality patient care with compassion, attentiveness, amazing amounts of cognition, which is what we bring to the table, right? In, in a model, in a business model that fundamentally is actually designed to capture codes, which is exactly 180 degrees away from the product we're supposed to deliver. So my personal epiphany was realizing like, oh, I'm literally trying to make pizza at a Mexican restaurant, to use a silly analogy. From, from the concierge versus DPC, yeah, the concierge versus DPC, you know, just because people pay cash for their health care doesn't mean that's a bad thing. In fact, we choose to pay cash for virtually everything else because we understand if I give you my dollar, I'm in control and I get to negotiate. Yeah. But I think the key to all of this is when we say healthcare is expensive or when we say, you know, that MRI is expensive or when we say the cost of healthcare is killing America, what people do not understand is 
that $2,000 MRI you just got because you live in my community, my patients can get for 600 under the exact same circumstances. In some other communities, they can get it for 400. So I like to flip this to an order of magnitude discussion about if you are in the insured model, especially for primary care and receiving services, you are at Bloomingdale's, whether you meant to be there or not. You are in the most expensive place you could possibly be to buy your socks, right? You know, and there doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be an us versus them. That the concierge model can provide a great option and great care for some people. But what DPC brings to the table is high quality personalized medical care with your own physician with wholesale meds and labs for an average of about $77 a month. And then you layer in, you don't have a copay, you don't have unexpected billing, and we try to drive down the cost of other services if you need it. My patients across the board, insured, uninsured, and underinsured, uh, purposefully often, um, told me last year in a survey they save an average of $2,000 out of pocket per year because of this model with me. So that's not robust publish it data. That's Dr. Julie asking her patients, how much would you estimate we save you? And, 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 and that's direct. You yeah, know, that, that is the actual, you know, I mean, there's no one, you know, when, when, when we think about medical waste, and we, you're talking about one in five Americans struggling with medical debt yeah, uh, in debt collection because of medical billing. You have now the number one cause of bankruptcy being medical billing. It's not from the primary care doctor. No. It's from, it's it's from, the, from the hospitalization. Doctor. It's from the hospitalizations. That's what's driving the waste in the country. Well, Unnecessary hospitalizations. So, yeah, yeah. And I, sorry, Joe, I, I um, so part of my unique personal story is I had breast cancer two years into starting this business. Wow. Um, my bilateral mastectomy bill was $33,000. Fortunately, I have insurance. So we had to pay, I think, six or 7000 and meet our family deductible that year. But I paid attention to the bill because this is my passion. My breast surgeon, the person who did the surgery, her compensation was $800. So in a $33,000 charge, which there's gaming and things that happen, the surgeon made $800. So I love to talk about the jerk orthopedist surgeon, but but you can basically do a mathematical model where you show even a physician who's taking home three or four million dollars a year, they are not, and you had a fifty or sixty thousand dollar knee replacement, their compensation was roughly three thousand dollars. So what I like to say to people, what is it worth to you to be able to walk comfortably for another 20 years? I think that's worth more than $3,000 in expertise. So the other part of this conversation, right, is healthcare is not expensive because physicians are raking in the dough. Yeah. Physicians are certainly doing, some of them are doing well for themselves, but that is the gap between a surgeon getting 800 and my bill being 33,000. That's what people need to start to ask about. Yeah. And, 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 and I suspect we'll get to this later, just the, the impact that, you know, having, the basis of our payment system be third party payers just and how that inflates costs just it is such a distorting effect but to roll back the conversation a little bit so Faisal you were asking about the difference between concierge medicine and direct primary care um, there are some pretty important structural elements and, and you actually alluded to one earlier so uh, most DPC docs have to use your analogy their arrow is just way out there right they are not there is no string attaching them back to insurance anymore and so you know, Dr. Gunther mentioned it. It's about on a national average, it's about $77 a month to get comprehensive primary care services from your personal primary care physician. And that's like a gym membership. That's all inclusive. Typically, concierge I pay, medicine. I pay, is, I pay, you know, I pay, I pay $160 a month for Orange Theory. 
exactly. Yeah, no, it's true. Are you the best shape of your life, though? Yeah, I mean, and but concierge medicine is is traditionally and, and typically built on the chassis of fee-for-service insurance, right? So yeah. if I had a concierge physician, and, and there are amazing concierge physicians, and patients receive great care at you know through groups like MDVIP, but yeah. what they're doing is they those those practices are charging insurance and then they just have add-on fees for quote unquote uncovered services on top, right? So you're they can't call it an access fee, but you're effectively paying everything you just have normal insurance and you're functioning like a normal insurance shop, but you just have additional fees on top of that that, that give you a little bit of extra breathing room as a business. And as a as a patient, as a consumer, you're putting your money in. So you have certain expectations of quality and treatment and respect that not all patients in America should or do, but they, they really honestly should have that expectation regardless. So it's, you know, concierge medicine is, is insurance plus additional fees, thus concierge. Direct primary care is like, that is, you're paying a gym membership for a doctor to have a personal relationship with you. And it typically has nothing to do with insurance. Though I will state upfront, and I serve as the director, the executive director of the DPC Alliance. Every patient should have some form of coverage for catastrophic catastrophic care, right? Like it, there's a function for insurance in, in healthcare. Absolutely. There's, there is no human being who is invincible and immortal. Therefore you will get sick and, or you will get hurt. And there mm -hmm. are times where that, the coverage for that will bankrupt your family if you don't have insurance, which is what insurance should be for, for the car crashes, for the cancers, but for routine care, for just talking to your doctor, for a routine physical, for saying, Hey, I have a rash. What is this thing on my arm? Like that, that's not necessarily where we should be using insurance effectively, which, right. you know, people are, back -ended people are going bankrupt paying for insurance, right? Yeah. And insurance was originally designed so when the ship sank coming over from Europe, people could recoup their, their investment, right? Exactly insurance right. designed not to be used. So um, I think Dr. Fassel, you said in your sort of the introduction to this show, and I think you're exactly spot on, um, which is where you said something in the spirit, like the whole conversation is, why do we pay for primary care the same way we pay for breast cancer or a knee replacement? That it, it's, um, it just doesn't make any sense. And so um, anyway, I, I, uh, I love, love, love talking about this. It gets me so excited because I think people, patients, physicians need to understand until we talk about money, we can't talk about the business of healthcare. And until we talk about the business of healthcare, we can't change it. And it is genius for physicians to feel bad or be afraid to talk about money. Because yeah. you can't negotiate, you can't goal set, you can't transform if you don't understand money. And you um, can't help your patients, right? I mean, like, yeah, no, you can't. we talk about stewardship, we talk about really caring for your patients as a community, as a whole person. And, you know, I, I've been in the position of, of working with, with doctors in a healthcare system where we, we're like, hey, this is how much drug X costs and this is how much the generic costs. And the doctor said, I never thought about that. I always just prescribe X. And I didn't realize that, you know, 50% of my patients can't afford that. And I, mm -hmm. I like, it just never crossed my mind that cost would be an issue, even mm -hmm. though they live this, right? The, every, every primary care doctor understands the impact of that cost has on their patients and their patients' ability to engage and actively manage their own healthcare. But we as a system, as a culture, as a nation have very intentionally disincentivized doctors from having those conversations with patients, um, which is oh, thus... 
go for it. Let me ask you a question. Um, so I have this like thing that I'm skeptical of, right? Coming from I, I worked for the Medicaid health plans and worked in in Medicaid for quite a while, Institute for Medicaid Innovation. And the thing I have with PCPs being so frustrated with fee for service and then going to direct primary care or concierge medicine is what about the patients that don't have Medicaid and don't have commercial insurance and they can't afford the cash payment for DTC? <laughs> I want to say, I want to, can Go I answer it? it? Go for it, Dr. Gunther. I get asked this all the time. And Robert, what you're not thinking about is where would these people get care? Because if I take insurance when I was employed, mm -hmm. they couldn't get through the door either. If you don't no. have a green card, a social security number, a phone number, mm -hmm. and an insurance card, you can't even get through the door. So what was funny, people say, well, what about the people who can't afford you? My pediatric care up until the age of 21 is $10 per person per month. My adult care when I opened was $60 per person per month. There's obviously variability in the monthly fee based on the model and the geographic location. I have mentored physicians in rural Idaho where we have got the monthly fee down to $29 a month as a business possibility because they yeah. already own their business, they have minimal overhead, and because frankly in Idaho minimum wage is $7.25. So, so the costs for me to run my business are lower so so what's crazy is I the people who can't afford direct primary care can't afford health care anywhere. Yeah, that's to exactly the extent right. That I raised my prices because um, because I started out too low, because our local community supported health can, health center that has full government funding was sending people to us because we were cheaper than their sliding scale and it became a business problem. Wow. Um, so I raised myself just $10 per member per month because the, literally the government supported government funded health clinic. Yeah. Um, we have one free clinic in town. We work with them. We actually, anyway, we work with them and collaborate, but, but yeah. so I can't solve all the problems, but direct primary right. care isn't bad because the doctor charges cash. <laughs> That's yeah. like yeah. all I and, and the, the other, the other aspect of that is like, even if you do have insurance, like, you know, we were. Ta I was talking. This is many moons ago. I was talking with uh, a, a member of the DPC Alliance who had a patient that needed a C an auto CPAP machine. And one of the things the DPC Alliance does is we help try to negotiate deals to make care cheaper and practice management more cheaper for our, our members and their patients. And so, you know, for a DPC Alliance, it's it is. I think it's four hundred dollars for like a full inclusive auto CPAP machine, top of the line, two masks, fitting all that. And they had a patient who needed one wanted to go through insurance because well, $400 is a lot of money. And so they went through the, the negotiated insurance program to get an auto CPAP machine. And oh, wait, they hadn't met their, their annual deductible. And so they yeah. were paying first dollar, right? So they're still paying out of pocket, even though they're right. quote unquote going through insurance. But the negotiated rate that the insurance company had was like 4,000. Yeah. It was literally a factor of yeah. 10. And that's the argument that I, when and, you, that's what I was looking for right there. That yeah. the deductible piece for folks that are right there. I, obviously, you can't expect the primary care physicians to, to deal with like the gap of insurance coverage in the nation. That's a policy issue from a, a national yeah. level. Yeah. Um, but I always wonder that because I'm like, if all the PCPs in an area start to go DPC, and then you have Medicaid patients that live there, can't geographically get someplace else. What are they going to do? Yeah, um, and or people I, who yeah. But but I will I will say that like a lot of so even though most DPC alliance or DPC doctors don't accept insurance, many of them see Medicaid patients. These Medicaid yeah. these Medicaid patients are prioritizing the allocation of their scarce resources, saying yeah. my healthcare is and really important. And you know, if there is a catastrophic incident, then Medicaid is great for that, right? But I don't necessarily want to wait three weeks a month 
five weeks to see my primary care physician. Yeah. I want to be able to call them. I want to be able to text them. Yeah. And to Dr. Gunther's point, like one of the beauties of, of the direct primary care model as a concept is that it isn't, it isn't prescriptive or proscriptive. It is a very simple business framework that any doctor can apply to meet the needs of their practice and their patients. So right. I remember, um, this was at a national conference for uh, family medicine residents and medical students, uh, this 2000, what, 2015 or 2014. And I was working for the American Academy of Family Physicians at the time. And, and I had two people come up to me back to back, give me business plans for their, their proposed direct primary care practice. And, and one was going to, I think it was off the coast of Florida. It might've been Star Island, like a very high end community, um, like, and was, was, building their business to meet that need, right? And, yeah. and the rents of businesses in that community. Mm -hmm. And I looked over it. And then the next person in line was a, a different resident who had the same, almost verbatim business structure in terms of the monthly membership fee, what it would include, how they engage patients, how they would recruit patients. But their target community was undocumented workers at a poultry plant in Colorado. And their target, their business price was sub $20 a month. And it, wow. so it's an application of the same business principles, the same business model to meet a really basic human need, which is that how do I find a healer? How does how do I as a human being contact someone that I have trust and faith in that has my best interests in heart when it comes to what do I do when my body fails me? Yeah. And then and, you're you're as a patient, then you're the one who's choosing where you yep. get that care from. You are exactly at right. price transparency to say, okay, I'm willing to pay this price rather than having to go through the insurer that for quite frankly, doesn't care very much. Yep. And, so, and sorry, go ahead, Dr. McCarter. No, I was going to say, so Assad uh, brought in a good question about uh, what measures could be made to expand and explore value-based care rather than fee for service. And I think we talked about before we went on the air today, uh, Eric, our friend Eric Bricker did a video today or yesterday that said fee for service payment for primary care is stupid. Yeah. So what? What? <laughs> I mean, we're. I think the interesting thing about this and about the capitated models is you're getting away from that fee for service payment. The value that primary care provides, it, it it's hard to it. It's more than a sum of the parts. And so, what are yeah. your thoughts about that? Dr. Gunther, do you want to feel this? I know that this is something that you give a lot of thought to. Yeah. I, and I, you know, over seven or eight years of answering a question similar to this, I, I've distilled it down to uh, what I say is, am I only your doctor when I you are in front of me? And that tends to create pretty exceptional clarity for what patients want from their primary care relationship, right? And so, and then I can get much more granular, but many of the things that frustrate consumers of healthcare and doctors, and COVID has really changed some of this, but why do I have to come back to discuss my labs? Why can't my physician get a hold of me? I just needed to ask if I could lower my Zoloft. Why can't I talk to my physician? Why are there all these barriers? Why do I have to come in when I know I have a urinary tract infection? And I'm, I, I just have to, so where DPC wins, where this flexible or value-based care wins is it acknowledges, hey, the hardest part of our relationship is meeting, greeting, and me figuring out your history. And then we can work together. So why not use phones, televisit, email, text, why not yeah. treat each other like humans? So much of what we do doesn't have to be face-to-face, mm -hmm. -face. but if you only are paid or if you're a business whose model exists only when someone shows up and a doctor writes a code, then you have to honestly pervert the whole relationship 
to this transactional thing, mm -hmm. which means physicians aren't fully serving people, which leads to utilization of urgent care, fractured care, delayed care, UTIs in the ER, which is the most expensive place in the world to have a urinary tract infection cared for, and on and on. Versus, hey, I know my doctor's here for me. She knows me. I know her. I can call her in the morning. They're going to call me back. It fundamentally changes how people utilize care, how much people stress about care, and it changes my life because I get to enjoy knowing I met people's expectations. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's one of the things I love about what ChenMed does too, which is when the full risk model, when you're not really dependent on billing, the reason why, just for the audience's edification, um, the reason why physicians typically want you to come back is so that they can bill for that time, that office visit um, to make more revenue rather than doing a phone visit, which was historically reimbursed at, at a lower rate. And when you do DPC or you do full risk in uh, like a ChenMed type model, um, you can engage with patients how they want to be engaged with. And that's right. important to keep people coming back and to keep them, you know, able to be conveniently asking questions, to want to talk to their doctor, to bring up the little things when it could turn into a big thing. And it's not like you have to get in, you know, the bus to go downtown to your physician's office and sit in the waiting room for 40 minutes and then see your doctor for 15 and then leave. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. It is and such it, a, it, I remember in residency, how much medicine we were able to provide or how much care we were able to provide just on the phone when we're in the hospital, how much we were able to do. You know, Dr. Gunther, you mentioned about, you know, just uh, the need for patients to have to go see a doctor, even if, for a specialty consult, rather than, rather than sending a patient, like our average patient, you know, we deal with geriatrics, our average mm -hmm. patient is 72, 74 years old, five to seven chronic medical conditions in Tampa. They're all on fixed incomes across the country, but like where I'm at, they're earning six, nine hundred dollars a month in Social Security. So a lot of, right. you know, a lot of it, they have a, they have a, it's an incredibly needy population, and so the the inconvenience of having to send them anywhere, you know, hey, I, rather than just being able to call a cardiologist or call the specialist and say, hey, I've got the situation over here, you know, what do you think? I, you know, this is what I was thinking, or even the the doctor to doctor. Uh, relationship, you know, right. we're talking about the, the the doctor. We're restoring the doctor patient relationship with these models that don't have to stress people about the all the fluff in the chart f to justify the the encounter. But even the doctor to doctor relationship with these models, yeah, you know, I can if I'm like say I love knees and I love doing knee injections, but I'm working with a doctor in my practice who's not so comfortable with that. We talk with each other. Hey, can you know? Would you mind? Would you mind taking care of this? Or or if you have a situation where you can just call a doc and say, hey, I've got this situation here. Can you help me? Sure. And the patient, it saves the patient's time. And the patients know it too. They feel it too. Yeah. I was, I was so just, looking, I? I was looking over here for my post-it note, which I wrote down in an act of frustration one day. It says, handle it. And I, I am young enough as a doctor, but old enough. I remember a culture where the goal was to handle it, to solve the patient's problem. And we didn't seem to all culturally get so encumbered in like where I live right now, most subspecialists don't even answer their phone. And so when you force primary care to churn faster we and, and take care of widgets, we spit out widgets and then we're medically legal stressed. So we spit out very introductory things, not that we can't handle them, but we don't have time to work them up in eight minutes. So we spit them out. Now the subspecialists who are expensive are saturated and tired and unavailable to answer the phone. Anyway, yeah. the whole thing breaks down, right? And you're exactly right. I mean, your patient, $600, $900 a month. I'm instantly, how much is an Uber? How much is a cab? Can someone 73 navigate that on their own? How long are they in your waiting room? What about COVID? Like it's all. Absolutely. 
all unnecessary. And honestly, I think as people know better, they're going to expect better. And I like that, you know, once you know better, you have to do better. And in healthcare, we have to do better. And until physicians start to demand better, what we are doing is standing up business models that do not serve our patients. Um, And so I love for physicians to hear the story, to be brave, to understand, like, it may sound Pollyanna, but you can get way back to a place of authenticity with how you practice. I personally, full risk terrifies me for one reason. I have lost trust in everyone else involved in the healthcare relationship. So I will not put my financial future in the hands of anyone but my patients. And I firmly believe that as long as I serve them better than other business models, they will pay because that's how every business works. If I deliver something that's 10% better, it has value, people will pay. Um, And that has stood up. So I have tons of respect for you. I do think full risk makes sense because it honors, it honors, you're the doctor, this is your patient, own that relationship and do the best you can. But I've heard some, I, I can understand physicians fear about full risk because the other players in the full risk relationship have not always had a lot of integrity. Yeah, and that and that goes back to the question that was presented by the commenter. How would we measure, quote unquote, measure value um, in a full risk model in a direct primary care sense? And, and I would actually posit that we need to flip that question on its head, right? So the, the way we think about value, particularly in, in healthcare, isn't as, as patients and consumers, we think of value as, as health insurance yeah. And and purchasers of healthcare, right? So like total cost, yeah, that is absolutely important. But like HEDIS, ECQM measures, all of those are proxies for what quality of care looks like. And for a human being, none of that really matters. Right? <laughs> no. Like, and the most important thing that we know, like, it's funny that the scientific evidence isn't isn't clear why primary care makes the difference it, that it does. And we we know it does, right? We know that having a, a good relationship with a primary care physician will you know, extend life, life expectancy, reduce mortality across the community. But we don't really know why, but we suspect it has something to do with relationships, which is something that we've been talking a lot about tonight. And the fact that, you know, when, when I, as a, as a patient, have a trusting relationship with a doctor, there are certain activities that I will probably undertake and do when, when, when a recommendation is made to me. But we don't measure relationships. We don't understand the value of a relationship. We understand you know, what is, what is Joe's, you know, A1C over the distribution of 12 months? Like that's not a real quality measure. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. a clinical measure that we use as a proxy for quality. So yeah. we need to, well, we, need, we do need a discussion about that down the road. But yeah. the other thing is that we also, in terms of thinking about value, when it comes to cost, we are still stuck in this fee for service framework. And, and so in another life I worked as, um, as a director in, in a, in a nonprofit, which health system in Kansas City, and, and it was a, a fantastic institution in and of itself. But like the math just doesn't work when it comes to to fee for service primary care. And, and and I would love to get your thoughts on this, Faisal and and Roberts and Dr. Ricardo's. Like, so for every dollar that we build when a, when a patient came in with insurance, you know, we had a whole team, multiple teams of of employees who did nothing but look at the notes, look at the coding, and bill it out, right? And then we knew that every single one of those things, most of them would be denied and we'd have to appeal it. And, you know, the insurers would go back and forth and they literally called it a game. And, and you know, I had one one coder who told me very clearly, like, oh, this is absolutely a game. So I come in on Sundays and fax it in. And if I fax it in on Sundays, then it's, it's less likely that they'll reject the appeal. 
And so for every dollar that was billed out, we, our CFO expected to see anywhere between 25 and 30, 35 cents back on the dollar. And because we needed that overhead, it cost us between 18 and 22 cents to submit the claim to begin with. So for every dollar that we charged, it pay, it cost us up to 22 cents and we expected to see 25 to 35 cents back, right? It, That's why you end up with prices. It's painful to hear you speak. I mean, it's so painful for me to hear <laughs> about how this is 95% of healthcare in the country. Yeah. 95% of healthcare in this country is exactly what Joe is just talking about. And and I think I think what's in, what's important to understand with the full risk model and and just really the good a good the 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 relationship with the primary care doctor, like the doctor patient relationship, if we could measure the trust with the doctor patient relationship and if we if we use the unit of measure of success as being health yeah. Time away from the hospital. You know, I think with the capitated model, somebody asked me just a couple of weeks ago, I was on a value-based panel, and someone will say, what's the difference between the managed care in 2021 versus managed care in 1991? And, and here's the difference. With the full risk world, if I don't put in the effort, like we, we our, our flu vaccination rates you know, in the country, we, we, we still haven't crossed 50% with, uh, with American adults getting vaccinated against the flu, right? In my world, uh, we're somewhere in the 70, 80 percent. I've got one of our doctors who got 97 percent of his pa- panel vaccinated against the flu. We are incentivized to focus on prevention. We're incentivized to reduce unnecessary specialty, specialist referrals. Now, what happens if I if we restrict a necessary specialist referral? Where's the patient going to end up? They're going to end up in the hospital. So we have an incentive to. It's not that we're we're avoiding we're, we're restricting the right medication or restricting the proper procedures. No, we're making sure that when you have that relationship, you make sure your patients get what they need when they need it to avoid a catastrophic situation down the line. Yeah. And that's where the secret lies. The, the measure should be, could you imagine a world where we're all competing with each other to improve our patients' health? The, the, what we're doing, to, what, we're, what we're going after here is trying to collectively improve the health of our community. You know, and, 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 and you're right, we have to make that shift from the fee-for-service way of doing things where the goal is to generate revenue by billing. And we're like, no, no, no. The goal should be to generate revenue by improving health. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, and, you know, and build trust. Sorry, go ahead, right. Robert. Yeah, I just want to say, you know, going back to the quality metrics, one of my favorite topics. Um, and we <laughs> measure quality metrics that are convenient for us yeah. um, because mm-hmm. we have them there. And there are a lot of times process measures, which is like, did this get done? And that is not the, the, the gold standard of, I should say the gold standard of quality metrics is outcome measures, which tell us that something actually occurred that we wanted to have. That's the right. best outcome measure we have is mortality rate, which is obviously not very good when it comes to wanting to improve health. Um, and so we get stuck in the situation where we do look for like, okay, was the A1C checked? You know, did they get a foot exam for diabetics? You know, did all these certain evidence-based practices actually occur? And then just because we happen to have fields for them in the EMR, or there's claim uh, codes for it, we're able to measure those and say, okay, well, it's quality care done, and it's the best that we have, but it doesn't actually end up actually doing what the, the goal of healthcare services is, um, which is producing better health across the country and for individual patients. Um, one of my favorite things to talk about is that we actually have a metric that's really, really effective at predicting whether outcomes were good, um, and it's actually asking patients if, if they feel better. Um, and, 
<laughs> Sorry, there's there's an add-on. Yeah. And, there's, and Robert, there's two. Robert, and when you said that, I am in like full fight or flight mode right now. Like I have to go to the bathroom, my stomach hurts, like I can't. Like this is literally like PTSD from before. Because I know. That moves yeah. the needle, none of that moves the needle in yeah. the room with the patient. And yep. to something Dr. Faisal said, and this is going to, hopefully this will come across the right way. I actually don't think our job is to improve patients' health. Oh. I think patients' job is to improve their health. Our job is to build such a trusting and accessible relationship that we are the singular most trusted advisor when patients decide they want to improve their health. Mm-hmm. So what they decide to do, so for me, like when I was told, oh, you're going to be paid for quality, you're better A1Cs, I said, fine, I'll just fire anyone who doesn't get their A1C below seven within three months. I know how to get your A1C below seven. It doesn't mean you will. Anyone who doesn't get their mammogram. And I was being facetious, but the point is, I love providing authentic education and care. And I love that we all have free will to screw it up. And if you can't accept that people are more driven to screw themselves up than they are to do everything right, because doing everything right isn't that fun and it doesn't feel good. So, so, but, but if you can't accept that, and if you're pressured that somehow you're accountable to the fact that your patient had four beers on Friday, I think that's where we see physician burnout, physician exhaustion. Our role is to have time, space, energy, compassion, and knowledge, and to be able to communicate with patients in a way that is not intimidating so that they do come to us. And then we have to make sure the systems allow that. When they need us, we're there, we're involved. Mm -hmm. And as you build that trust over time, that's where you potentially can be a part of transformation. But I love people and I've got patients who will never quit smoking and that is not my fault. Like it's just not. Um, So I don't know. I, I think, I think sometimes I think some of these business models hold physicians to be accountable for things that actually are human nature. And we can push back that these don't move the needle on the quality of life. People not feeling lonely, people not worrying that if they cut their hand, they don't know who's going to help them. My father's 73. He needs a doctor visit. He called his physician. Hasn't been seen in three years because he's pretty healthy. They said, you're a new patient. Your former physician's not taking new patients. Like, what is that? Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and there's there's actually, I mean, if, if, the, if the objective measure down the road is, is how many hospitalization events were prevented, right? then I have a perfect analogy for this, a perfect, not an analogy, a story. So, and Dr. Julie was actually the a participant in this and I, and I apologize for putting her on the spot. But so last year, my, my son was playing out, outside of his school um, just after school with his friends and he got bit by a dog in the face and he got a pretty, like a deep gash right in front of his ear. And so, you know, we're extremely fortunate. We were right in front of the school. So we rushed in had the nurse take a look at it and she disinfected it, cleaned it out. And she's like, you have to go to the, you have to go to the emergency room. I was like, are you sure? Like, I'm looking at this wound. It, it, are you sure we need to go to the emergency room? She's like, if you don't go to the emergency, you, you, then you have to go to an urgent care. Like you need sutures like right now. And at the time I had my, my, my whole family was signed up with our doctor, Dr. Marguerite Duane, who's still my doctor. And so I texted her, I said, Hey, Dr. Dwayne, could you, could you take a look at this? Like my son, you know, Cyrus just got bitten. Here's this gash, you know, here's the, here's the pre-clean, here's the post-clean. Do we need to go to an emergency room? And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to go to an emergency room. I, my son just got bitten on the face by a dog. Um, and so, you know, she, she texts back and she's like, so you have two choices. One, you can go to urgent, urgent care center and they'll put sutures in there. And two, it is, it's a clean wound, it's manageable. 
you can take care of it yourself and I will walk you through that process. I can't help you right now because I just landed, I'm I literally just landed in an airplane in, in Dallas. <laughs> but, I, you know, give me five minutes, I'm gonna call you and we'll walk through this process because it's super simple and I know you can do this. And I, Dr. Dwayne, if you're, if you're, on the, if you're watching, <laughs> I apologize. I also called, you know, I, I texted Julie as well and it's like, hey, what are my choices here? And she said the exact same thing. And so Dr. Dwayne and Dr. Julie just walked me through the process. She's like, look, it's clean wound. You know, I was really fortunate insofar as like, I was able to talk to the dog walker, get the vaccination record. So like, I didn't have to worry about rabies or anything like that. Um, and she's like, keep it clean, sterilize it. Here's how you wash a wound to make sure it doesn't stay infected. Here's what you want to look out for. You know, put some steri strips on it, let it breathe and you're fine. And you know, today, this is a year later and, and kids heal remarkably. Like there's barely any scar there. And that could have been a thousand dollar visit to, to Children's National here in Washington, DC. But instead it was a text message and a $10 visit to CVS to get steri strips and sitting in a bathtub with my son. And in fact, my then six-year-old son, I, I presented the choice to him to him in Baldwin. It's like, would you want to go get stitches in your face? And he had just, he had literally just finished a sewing project at home. And I was like, this is going to be like your sewing project, only you're going to be the stuffy. Or you can, if you trust me and, and Dr. Dwayne, we can try to do this ourselves. And he's like, Dr. Dwayne, I, do what she says. That's, that's what trust does. That's how you avoid preventable emergency visits. That's, that's the impact of, of having a healing person healer relationship. And Dr. Gunther, I love, I love what you're saying is that like, I, I always talk about this all the time, just like inherent paternalism that exists in medicine, which is like, oh, you know, it, it, it comes in two ways, which is like me being doctor and, you know, this is what you need to do. You come to me when you have a problem and like, you know, we'll control the patient data. We will sort of like, you know, be the arbiters of, of death and of health. Um, and that has a lot of issues with a lot of patients who don't trust their doctors. They don't like coming there for a lot of different reasons because of that type of attitude. Um, it's not very consumer centric. So I love that, you know, you see yourself as a consultant rather than, you know, the person that is you know, responsible and in control of that patient's health and body. Um, and I think that that's something that doesn't exist as a cultural attitude a lot of times um, in, in medicine in general. Um, but it also shows up when doctors also say, oh, well, I can't do anything when the patient leaves the office and you get that sort of same flip side of the coin where it's like, well, I'm kind of in charge of healthcare, but also like, oh, I can't, the patient doesn't want to listen to me with this piece of paper I give them when they leave my 15 minute office visit that they waited 45 minutes for. Oh, well, I can't do anything about that. And I'm still dinged for these quality metrics. Yeah, um, yeah. And I've learned from Dr. Sayed that, you know, that trust piece is the kind of like piece in, in between there that actually does lead to a the behavior change, which we were talking about kind of ironically before we came live. But also, it, it really breaks down those barriers for people who might be anxious about going to see their doctor and, you know, are uncomfortable talking about certain things that are necessary for their care. Um, so I, I love that you said that. And thank you for um, jumping in there on, on that when I said that, yeah. you know, it's it's about producing health. And I think you're right. It is it's about building trust and increasing well-being um, and increasing quality of life and happiness yeah. rather than necessarily what we might deem to be the ideal health for that patient. Right. Yeah. And we get into great cultural conversations with aging, which is the goal is not whoever dies with the most patients wins. The goal is not whoever's patients live the longest wins, right? So you mentioned measuring mortality. 
dying, and we know this in medicine, doctors know this, dying is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Yeah. Dying with a rectal tube is, but for, for people not in medicine, that's a that's a firm line you never want to cross. But anyway, but um, but so to me, for me, it's how do we continue to have cultural conversations? How do we afford time? How do we create a model where the person who's the expert in the human body from a science standpoint can work with the person living in that body and have an authentic discussion about their goals? And if their goal is like, I do not want to live past 85 or I do not like... I'm going to smoke and drink and be morbidly obese and I I'm okay with it. And I accept, you know, like, so, so sometimes what I find really fun about being a physician, a primary care provider, once you really authentically know people is when you can meet people where they are, but agree to disagree, like, Hey, it really would be better to quit smoking. Um, then there's so much authenticity there. So, so Robert, to your point, to my, to our physician colleagues, this is going to be a little bit of a, a poke, but, when you became a physician, I firmly believe you made one commitment, which you will too. You agreed to show up and you agreed to try. And if you're having a hard time showing up and you're having a hard time trying, you either need to release that patient to a different physician because it's okay. You're not going to be compatible with everybody or you need to take a break because if you're entering the room and you're so burnt out, tapped out, angry, frustrated, you're not interacting with that human. You're not trying to be there. You're just trying to survive it. You got to, you got to get away. You got to, it's not restoring you. It's not helping them. It's not bringing integrity to what it means to be a doctor. And that's okay. Cause everyone burns out on stuff sometimes, but, but the minimum commitment of any patient visit, as far as I'm concerned, is you show up and you are committing when you knock on that door that you are going to enter that room and you are going to try. And, and it's, hard, to, it's hard to try for the fee for service doctor spending 15 minutes documenting yeah. each patient encounter. You know, that's what we yeah. have here. It's like you can't, it's so hard to relate when the, there's so much pressure to do all the non-doctor work and all the clerical work and all the data entry work that, that there's no medicine. It's there's not no 15 minutes. Social determinants. We can't yeah. even deal with the pathophysiology. I've got a, a COPD exacerbation about to happen and I'm spending all this time on the low back pain. And then meanwhile, the COPD just kind of slipped away. The patient has a $15,000 COPD exacerbation that I could have easily managed. Right. But I, yes. I got caught up with the low back pain and the and the computer. And, so you, know, you actually touched on something that's super important, like which is in traditional fee-for-service, like it's not 15 minutes of documentation. Like the most the most recent time work study analysis is for every like for every hour of patient care that a doctor delivers in a traditional fee-for-service practice, it's an hour's worth of administrivia on site. And then they take another hour to two hours after they get home. Gosh, it's terrible. Right? So you spend more time, a, a traditional fee-for-service doctor, if they are doing their absolute best, they're spending more time managing the notes about the patient care rather than actually providing patient care. Yeah. And that's one of the beauties my, of direct primary care. Yeah. I started to tell my patients, I, w- I started to say, and I meant, I was like, you need a doctor when I was employed because I was doing all the other employed doctor things. And I was like, you need that person whose job it is to like dig into up to date and think about you and consult with subspecialists and then call you back. Like, and I said it one time, it kind of was a slip of the tongue. And I was like, no, I actually mean this person needs a person whose job is to be a doctor. Cause I'm doing the typing and the coding and the billing yeah. and the, you know? Yeah. So, and, and, and to, to go back to the analogy that, that Dr. Gunther laid out, not analogy, the, the 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 point that she made that, you know, in even in value-based care, and and I I will be first to say, this is unprompted. Like, 
direct primary care as a concept, as a model, is, is truly a thing of beauty, but it's not the perfect end state for every single physician nor for every single patient in the United States, right? It is, it is an exemplar of what primary care in America could be, but it, we're not saying that every single doctor has to end up in direct primary care. But one of the things that really does serve as an exemplar is if full candor, and, and I happen to know that my father is in the comments right now. So when I was young and stupid, I'm still fairly young and still fairly stupid. I was a smoker. And, you know, at 21 years old, I went to a, a, a primary care doctor here in, in Washington, D.C. And he saw my form, saw that I was smoking, saw that I didn't smoke very much, like, you know, far less than average. And, and he said, you need to quit smoking. And I looked at him. I was like, that was OK. Um, didn't say anything, didn't respond literally just chose never to go back to that doctor again. Like it was, it was very, you know, yeah, there was zero capability of that physician to change my behavior, despite the fact that I knew he was right. However, with a direct primary care physician, you know, Julie's patients can turn to her and say, I'm not going to quit smoking. And they, because they, they have a different relationship with Julie than Absolutely. I did with this doctor can can anticipate that she is not going to then turn around and be like, well, you're an idiot. Like, blah, 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 blah. like you know, medical science says that you need to quit smoking and clearly you need to do exactly <laughs> what I tell you to do. Like, you know, it's, a, it's when so you scary. have, yeah, yeah, when you have so a, a transactional relationship with your patient, it it seems strange and it serves, it seems mercenary and it seems counterintuitive to the beauty that is being a healer but it allows these much more authentic, powerful healing relationships insofar as like you can actually get to know your patient and your patient can can respond like a human being rather than responding as a passive passive recipient of, oh, my doctor told me X, Y, or Z, right? Because <laughs> tell, your, uh, tell your Coca-Cola story. Uh, oh, which one, the Coke story? The Coke story. Yeah, I was just thinking that when he was saying that I, I, I in my first couple of weeks at, at ChenMed, um, I had a patient first visit with a patient and and the medical assistant was like good luck with this patient he's seen many doctors uncontrolled diabetic his a1c is like 11 doesn't care doesn't take his insulin doesn't take his meds and i was like okay you know we got in there i got in there i got to meet him and we just started talking you know we were just talking about life and he started telling me about um all his struggles and you know with financial struggles and just you know he's trying to make make ends meet and, and when we started talking about his diabetes, he said, oh, I know, no, no, I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. No rice, no, no bread, no pasta, no potatoes. No and I was like, no, no, no. I just want to know, you know, what's your what's your day to day life like? And his addiction was drinking Cokes and he would drink like six to nine cans of Coke every yep. day. And yep. it's hot. You know, we're in Florida and it's hot and he just loved and it had to be a can of Coke, not a two liter. Because then I started talking. I said, well, that's quite expensive. You know, you're telling me about all this fun. Why don't you get like a two liter bottle and we could start there and it's a much cheaper and, 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 and you don't have to buy the Coke brand. You can get like an off brand. He's like, no, no, it's got to be a can of Coke because I want that experience. And I was like, OK, OK. So we, we after talking, I said, well, let's let what's a bare minimum that you need to have every day? And he's like, well, I need to have a can of Coke. In the uh, with my lunch and a can of Coke with dinner, yeah. And uh, so then I said, okay, well, uh, would you be okay with seltzer water? You know, in the in the other times, and he said, yes, yes to that. He agreed yeah. to that, and that was a first visit. And actually, I got in trouble 
Well, a little bit of trouble because he went out to the waiting room and he told the, the, the patients in the waiting room, I love this new doctor. He's the first doctor. I'm an uncontrolled diabetic. And he told me it's okay to drink Coke. And then, and what are you doing telling the patient the diabetic? It's like, he, oh, actually, he started to say, you know, I'm not no doctor, but I don't think that you should be telling an insulin dependent diabetic that it's okay to drink Coke. And I said, hey, look. This was the first step. That was a huge win. He just went from six to nine Cokes to yep. literally two. And you know what ended up happening? I told him it was okay for him to add the the flavored, you know, the, the sugar-free flavoring to the seltzer water. He was a, more addicted to the fizz than he was to the Coke. And he started making his own, his own uh, you know, flavored seltzer water drinks. And he stopped drinking the Coke. Within like, I want to say it was within like six to eight weeks, he stopped drinking Coke altogether because it was cheaper to drink the seltzer water and he was making his own drinks. But that's what I'm trying to say. It's that doctor-patient relationship. If you don't, yeah. like in my previous life, we didn't even have two visits per patient per year. Mm. And this was like one of the largest FQHCs in the state of Florida, one of the largest, actually it was the largest in Florida, one of the largest in the country. We didn't even have two visits per patient per year. So there's no way we could have had that type of relationship. There's yeah. no way. I mean, we, I was a doctor saying, no rice, no bread, no pasta, yeah. no potato. Okay. And like, okay, yeah. good job, Fastly. Yeah. You're a great doctor. You know, this is- Yeah. You told that patient what he needed to know. Yeah. I think it's more fun. It's and people when they feel heard and feel safe and have trust, people are willing to do better. But when we jump straight to do perfect, because the pressure is on us that that's the algorithm. Yeah. I actually I share this practice with a nurse practitioner, a PA, and yesterday we we're having a conversation kind of in this spirit. And I said, I said at the end of the day, we always have to remember. We always have to ask ourselves, do I understand the problem from the patient's perspective? And have I solved the problem? We, our job is to integrate the algorithm and the data and the science and the standard of care. But the business, our business model is still to help people solve problems. Um, so, so yeah, I, I have great stories like that. That's where I get really excited. That's not conventional. It's out of the box. But you did everything a good doctor would do, which is you figured out actually probably the biggest trigger for that patient's lack of glycemic control. And you probably brought his A1C from 11 to 8 with just that believe, um, it, believe it or not he's on he's down in the sevens without any medication awesome. okay so, so i just want to let you know small so changes awesome. the, the you know the what's it called the um the nudges yeah this is little these these small little changes have profound impacts and you know what uh, guys this was i know you're a student yeah. as well of the uh, behavioral econ well the data says at an a1c of 11 you should have put him on insulin absolutely Absolutely. So I mean, even there, right? Anyway, yeah, but this shows like the power of time and the power of you seem like such a happy, authentic person. And that is meaningful to patients too. They, they feel like they can connect. And so when we're happy, we can help other people um, be more earnest and you can figure these things out. You know, okay, so we have, we have to bring, we, Robert, we got to bring him back. We, we, we both have to come back. <laughs> we have to talk about what life is like with oh, 100%. life without CPT codes and without RBUs. We got to bring you back. You know, I wanted to talk more because this is supposed to be a half an hour. We're trying to really keep this tight. We're trying to end it at 8 30, but we always have a good time. <laughs> we don't do very well. So, number one, <laughs> number one, you have to come back. Uh, number two, I want to talk more at, at, at next time we get together about what you spoke about with the MRIs. Thank you for sharing your story. It's a very powerful story. Mm -hmm. um, but like even with my mother, she needed a, she needed an MRI of her brain and uh, just in the last uh, month. 
and like and she didn't have insurance my mom doesn't have insurance and um and the cost was literally we were prepared to pay four thousand dollars i called around tampa and literally the cash price for the brain mri and she it had to be an open mri because she's has horrible anxiety yeah and uh it was 250 dollars cash yeah. price. so what, what you had touched upon i want to talk about that some more about the reduced pricing that 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 many people people don't aren't aware they're so used to dealing with the insurance system that they have no idea that there's cash prices available and actually it's much more affordable than they realize exactly uh, that one and then also I'd love to talk about like people like my dad he, he's a Chen Med patient he had five specialists thinking that he needed he was like on death's door he comes he gets a good doctor and he lo- he lost all the specialists the good yep, perfect. so I'd love to talk about that too you know how you're able to simplify care when you restore that doctor patient relationship and Robert, yeah. I'm sorry. I know you were speaking, but I looked oh. at the time. And I was like, I promised them eight to eight thirty. Oh, like, I was saying the same thing. I was going to say, oh, we we probably need to wrap it up here. So um, let me say one thing, and then everybody, we like to end with like a quick thirty second last thing you want to yeah. say that kind of wraps things up. So um, I really enjoy hearing about new model business models that really impact patient care. Um, and so, you know, anything that's not for service, anything that really gets outside of the, the current healthcare system box is very, very exciting. And we have a good example of two here, direct primary care and the full risk model um, for dual-eligible patients, Medicare patients um, at ChemMed. Um, and I, for one, see this totally as the future, um, particularly in primary care, which in the United States has historically been underinvested in. Um, and it's something that I think, you know, enterprising, innovative folks are really starting to crack the um, code to improve in the United States in particular. So thank you both for, for joining us. And um, I'll let you take us out. Dr. Gunther. Number one, thank you so much. Number two, I would love to hear what's up next week because I'm going to watch this show from now on. All and right. Number three, my one of my biggest passions in addition to patient care is physician care. And I think there is nothing better for our country's welfare and health than deeply compassionate, deeply passionate, energized physicians. So for physicians listening to this, if you still love being in the room, but you hate everything else, I think we've showed you there are other business models where you can regain that authentic interaction with patients. It's not perfect. We still have prior authorizations. People still don't do what we ask, but there is an innate joy in this work and you can reclaim that. Oh, you're going to love next week's episode. Next week's episode is happy doctors equal healthy patients. And the friend joining is Dr. Robbie Pearl. So I'm really, really excited to have him come. He's a, he's a, he's he's a passionate speaker. He's just such an, uh, I can't wait to have him come on. So yes, when you just said that, I was like, yeah, happy doctors equal health. I didn't know that. That seems like a setup, but it was it was fortuitous. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> but we're, we're, get we're, in on that we're, segue. This is yeah. what happens when you get kindred spirits together. You know, yeah. the energy is there, even in this virtual manner. It's true. So I, I, I guess if I had like a final thought, it would be revisiting. It's funny, the, the one question we have from the user about how do we measure value? Um, I think that is a real question that, we as an industry, as a nation, have to come to terms with. Um, I would love if you could have a conversation with with truly groundbreaking thinkers like Professor Rebecca Etz out of uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, developing systems to try to better measure healthcare um, quality, right? So, you know, Robert was talking earlier about we have systems for measuring care, but it just happens to be what we know how to do. And there's a name for that. It's called the streetlight, street uh, the streetlight effect. 
But there's yeah. another name for that, which is the drunkard search, right? And yeah. you search, you look at measures, you look at quality metrics where you've always done so because that's what you're habituated to do because that's what you have the infrastructure to do. Not because it actually makes a difference for patients, not because it makes a difference for doctors, but that's what you can do historically, which is the worst reason to keep doing something just because you've always done it that way before. It's insanity. It is insanity. <laughs> you know, I, I, um, we, we have our nurses and care teams, every patient gets a weekly phone call and we call them love calls. Every patient gets a daily text message. You know, it's just part of, it's amazing what you can do. I mean, we're talking about doctors, you know, uh, doing non-doctor work. Look at nurses, look at what the medical is, look at all the nonsense work that they're doing. Could you imagine if they were all, if everyone was just operating at, at, the, at, the, at the extent of their credentials, I mean, just imagine what they could do. They, they'll do exactly what they wanted to do when they pursued healthcare in the first place. Yeah. So I'm, I love tonight. Tonight was a great conversation. I cannot wait to have you all come back again. Uh, this, is, this is really quite remarkable. We started, I didn't have social media a year ago. I just got, I got onto all this with, because of COVID. I do a lot of residency lectures on value-based care and restoring the doctor-patient relationship. Uh, so we stopped traveling. We had to come out onto the social media platforms, and it's just been great. It's kind of turned into like this the old-fashioned AM talk radio, and we just get to talk shop about totally different way of practicing medicine. Yes, there is a different way of practicing medicine. Um, so thank There's you. Several, so in fact. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> several, and and you don't need to deal with all the nonsense. It's insanity. So to the guests who do. Well, to you two, thank you so much for joining tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, thank you. And and to our audience, thank you so much. I saw the chat was going on. I see Dr. Dan was busy with the chat. Thank you so much, Dr. Dan. Thank you. Uh, for more information about what we spoke about today with direct primary care and to explore career opportunities with ChenMed, please visit ChenMed.com. Next week, we're going to be going live on the ChenMed platforms as well. Uh, next week's topic is going to be happy doctors equal healthy patients. And we have a very special friend joining us, Dr. Robbie Pearl, thrilled about that. We believe access to primary care is a right, not a privilege.